I want to talk to you for the next little while about cave matters. Cave matters, and if you have your copy of God's Word, I would like for you to open to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter 24 this morning. As you know, we've been moving through 1 Samuel for many, many months now, and uh, it's been a couple of weeks uh, since I was last here, but of course you know David is running for his life. He's running from King Saul, who has amassed some 3,000 soldiers in search for David and is trying to make sure that David doesn't come to the throne. And uh, Saul is, uh, is leaving no stone unturned to try to make sure that uh, David is killed. So we're going to look at this story today as David is now hiding out in the caves of En Gedi, and uh, he is uh, trying to make sure that Saul doesn't find him. So I just want to read the opening verses, and then we're going to come back and kind of pick our way uh, through this 24th chapter today as we look at cave matters. Verse number one says, It came to pass when Saul was returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepcoats by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to cover his feet, and David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said to thee, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it shall seem good to you. And David rose, and he cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privately. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him, because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So may God add his blessings today as we look at cave matters. In 1 Samuel 24, David is involved in a game, which to him it was certainly not a game, but it was a game of hide and seek as he's trying to flee the retribution of King Saul. Perhaps you heard the story I've heard many times before and read it again just recently of a pastor who was reaching out to a family that had visited the church that he served. And he just simply gave them a courtesy call to say, thank you for visiting with us. We want you to come back and visit with us again. Tried to set up a time where perhaps he could get better acquainted with them. So as he calls this family, uh, the voice that answers the phone, the voice on the other end, it's obvious that it's just a little fellow and he's speaking in a whisper. And as the little boy picks up the phone, he says, hello. And the pastor said, uh, yes, who's speaking? And he said, my name is Jimmy. He said, how old are you, Jimmy? And he said, he said I'm, I'm four years old. He said, well, is your father home? And he said, no, no, dad's busy. Well, what about your mother? Is she home? And he said, no, uh, she's home, but she's busy too. She can't come to the phone. Well, are there any other adults in the home? And he said, yes. He said, the police officers are here. He said, can I speak to one of them? And he goes, no, they're they're all busy too. Well, how about anybody else there that I could speak to? And he said, well, the fire department is here, but they're all busy. And he said, "Uh, well, Jimmy, he said, why are all of these people so busy? And he said, they're busy looking for me. Well... (laughs) 
In our text today, what you're going to find is King Saul is engaged in this pursuit of hide and seek. He is running for his life. He's hiding, and King Saul is searching frantically to try to find David. But again, it was not a game for either one of them. You see, David had won the hearts of people. David, his, his, uh, his uh, popularity was soaring. Saul's popularity was diminishing. David had not only won the hearts of the people, David had won the heart of God. And God had already tapped David to be the next king of Israel, but he had to wait for 15 years for that to finally play out. And during this 15-year season of waiting, he fought Goliath, he had many other battles, and now he's on the run from Saul. You see, King Saul's downward spiral was leading to such paranoia that he knew David was going to take the throne, so he had to stop David, he had to kill David before he ever came to power. So he amasses some 3,000 men, and the Bible says they are in hot pursuit of David. In fact, chapter 23 closes with Saul in pursuit of David. And then Saul gets word that he has to do battle with the Philistines, he peels off of this pursuit of David, goes to deal with the Philistines, and chapter 23 closes by saying, that now Saul gets word that David is hiding out in the caves of En Gedi. So we're, this is where we're going to pick up this narrative this morning as David is hiding out from Saul and from the 3,000 soldiers that are now in hot pursuit. And what I want us to do is I want us to notice how David refuses to exact revenge on Saul even when he had a good opportunity to do it. How he, how he refrained from, from getting even with Saul because Saul had tried to kill him on a number of occasions and how David really exercised great discipline uh, when he could have taken Saul's life at any time. So there's three things I want you to kind of remember this morning. Maybe you can jot these down as we move through it. First of all, he avoided social pressure. That is, David felt all the social pressure around him to get even with Saul and he was able to avoid that. Secondly, David always sought reconciliation, not revenge, not retribution, not get even, but he always sought reconciliation. And thirdly, David pursued righteousness. So we're going to unpack that for a little while as we move through it this morning and looking at cave matters. So first of all, notice in verse number one how the story unfolds. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, it was told him saying, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 men of Israel. He went to seek David with his men up on the rocks of the wild goats. When our um, group here at the church went to Israel a few years ago, uh, we were able to go down to the lowest point on planet Earth down by the Dead Sea, visit a place called Masada. There at the uh, area of Masada, it is dry, it is barren, it is, it is rocky, it is arid, very little, if any, vegetation. You could look on the cliffs of the mountainside and you could see it's kind of honeycombed or dotted with a, a numerous amount of caves. And in one of these caves would be where David would be hiding from David, I mean, from uh, King Saul. But here at, at in 
Gedi, you could see kind of a canyon cut out in the rocks, had a little bit of vegetation, kind of a small waterfall. And that is where David would spend this season in his life with 600 men hiding in this cave. So maybe if you think about a cave, uh, you think about maybe just a small uh, uh, little entrance into a, an outcropping of rocks. This must have been more like a cavern. I mean, if it's large enough to hold 600 men plus David, and they're all able to kind of disappear into the background and conceal themselves from the 3,000 soldiers that are in hot pursuit. So that is the context and that is the setting. David and his men are hiding out in En Gedi. And then lo and behold, of all of the caves that dot the mountainside, the one cave that Saul comes into happens to be the cave that David is already in. Doesn't just happen that way. God is behind the scenes working and orchestrating all of this out. But you'll notice in verse number three, the story unfolds this way. And he, talking about Saul, came into the sheep coats by the way where was a cave, and Saul went in to cover his feet, and David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. If you look at that phrase there in the King James, that David, or excuse me, Saul came in to cover his feet, that is a euphemism for saying that Saul came into this cave to use the, to use the restroom. And uh, Saul just knew that nature was calling at that particular time. And of all the caves that he could have entered into, it just happened to be the one that was occupied by David and his men. Saul doesn't know that. Saul has no clue. And the Bible says that he goes into this cave and he answers the call of nature. And at the most vulnerable time in his life, King Saul, not knowing that David was just around the corner, David could have came out and he could have taken his dagger and thrust, thrust it into the back of Saul. But he chose not to do that because first of all, I want you to note that David did not conform to social pressure. So if you're taking notes this morning, there is social pressure to conform. But David resisted that. Look what happens in verse number four. The men of David said to him, now I can just kind of see this play out in my mind. David, the, the, the day of the Lord, which the, which the Lord said to you, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it shall seem good to thee. In other words, David, here's your opportunity. Saul doesn't know we're here. Saul's in a vulnerable situation. Just take your dagger and go and get even with him. Then you'll be enshrined as king. We'll all get to rule and reign with you. And we'll just put an end to the reign of King Saul. And it'll all be done very quickly, uh, easy peasy, right? But David is not willing to conform to social pressure. Imagine having 600 men in this cave and they're all kind of appealing to his manhood. Go do it, David. Go do it. Go get him. He's right there. We'll take but just a moment, and it'll all be over with. Go ahead and take care of it. Always remember that the eye-for-an-eye eye philosophy is the way of the carnal nature, not the way of the spiritual nature. The get-even mentality that our fallen nature demands, 
is just a part of that, our fallen nature. And what you're going to find is David could have very well succumbed to that fallen nature, could have succumbed to the social pressure of his 600 men in the cave, and he could have went ahead and he could have exterminated or assassinated King Saul right there. But he chose not to conform to the social pressure. And of all the people saying, do it, do it, David was not going to give in to that. In an article called Teens and the Constant Pressure of Social Media, the author writes this. He outlines four common social pressures experienced by today's young people. And he writes, social networking sites have become a force of their own, driving teens to stay online in an attempt to keep up with how they perceive others to be living their lives. For teenagers, social media is a different world than it is for many adults. And then he outlines four uh, common social pressures. Number one, the pressure to be available all the time. Constant contact. Our teenagers feel that. He writes and uses this acronym that I don't know if many of our, our uh, older adults, my age and older, would know what this means, but certainly our younger generation knows this acronym. It's FOMO, F-O-M-O, right? You guys know that. Fear of missing out. And young people have that such a fear of missing out on what's going on in the, the lives of their friends and to be involved in this uh, continual cycle of a social network as to what's happening to who, when, and, and who said what to whom about what, that they, that they continually keep in constant contact out of fear of being left out of the loop. He says that causes great social pressure for our teenagers. Secondly, he says, it is the pressure to live the best life. He writes, social media is the best of the best of the profiles owner's life, all right? It is the best of the best, meaning that people who put stuff out on social media put out the very best of the best about themselves. He says, sometimes those bests hide what is really going on. Children and teenagers don't always realize that what they're seeing on social media profile is not an accurate representation of someone's life. They feel pressured to live up to that image of a perfect life. And when they fall short, they suffer from anxiety and depression, meaning that others might put out on, uh, on social media, wonderful vacation, wonderful life, wonderful family, wonderful job, everything is wonderful and it is beautiful. And that's, that teenagers and children who see, see this uh, look at their own lives and they think, my life's not like that. My life has struggles. My life has, has situations where my, my parents are at odds or my dad's laid off from work. Or my life is one where I've experienced abuse or loneliness or whatever it might be. And because their life doesn't measure up to that perfect life, by the way, it's not perfect, but it's presented in a perfect way, he says it brings so much social pressure on our teenagers and on our children that it can lead to depression and to anxiety. And he even goes a step further and he says in the lives of some, even to suicide because they just feel like they can never measure up. Then he gives us the third one. He says the pressure to engage in certain behaviors. Listen to what he says. This can start innocently enough with a desire to show our own best life by taking and sharing flattering selfies. 
Positive feedback might lead to more sexualized images, which can attract even more attention, you know, get even more likes and even more shares, and then it can eventually be used for humiliation or blackmail, and it brings increased pressure on our young people. And then number four, he, he, he uh, talks about the pressure of cyberbullying. A bullied teen might experience loneliness, sadness, changes in sleep and eating patterns, health issues, decreased academic performance, and many other things. It is the pressure to conform. Well, David felt that pressure, didn't he? 600 men in the cave saying, David, do it. It might be those in your college class at at, at college saying, we're going to a party tonight and there's going to be plenty of alcohol. Go ahead and do it. What does it matter? What does it hurt? Or there's going to be some marijuana there. What does it hurt? Go ahead and participate. And you feel that social pressure to kind of conform. David felt that. Listen, social pressure is not just real in the lives of teenagers and children. It's real in the lives of adults as well. Many times you've been working in your cubicle at the office and everybody else around you in the office gets invited to a party that you don't get invited to because you live by different standards and different convictions, but yet you feel all alone there and you feel that social pressure to conform and to be like everybody else. And the temptation is just to kind of give in and compromise your values. But I like what Billy Graham wrote many, many years ago. This is what he, what he writes. He said, the very ones whose social pressure causes you to compromise will despise you for it. They probably respect your convictions, and many of them wish they had the moral stamina to stand alone. Isn't that wonderful? Let me read that again. Billy Graham was before his time, wasn't he? Listen again. Listen to what he says. The very ones whose social pressure calls you to compromise will likely likely despise you for it. They probably respect your convictions, and many of them wish they had the moral stamina to stand alone. May the Lord give you added courage to be a witness for him, even in a hard place. Social pressure, the pressure to conform is real for children, it's real for teenagers, and it's real for adults. That's why I read to you Romans 12, be not conformed to the world. Don't let the world put you in its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you would know what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Have that moral fortitude to stand and to have good godly values. Even if everybody else goes a different way, let them go, but you take that stand. Amen, church? And you do what is right, and you live right and don't conform to the social pressures that can be so heavy upon our lives. I would say perhaps the most tragic illustration of social pressure that you find anywhere in the scripture is the night that Jesus was arrested. He was betrayed by Judas in the garden of Gethsemane. He was taken roughly by the soldiers and eventually they brought him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. And after Pilate um, interrogated Jesus, you remember his remark? He said, I find no fault in this man. And Pilate didn't want to deal with him anyway, so he sends him to Herod. And after a conversation with Herod, Herod mocks him, puts a robe on him, and sends him back to Pontius Pilate to, to deal with. And now here's Pilate again, and he's got to do something with Jesus. So once again, he says to the religious leaders in the crowd, in the, in the face of all of this social pressure, He said, I find no fault in him. 
But the law allows that I, that I uh, uh, or tradition allows that I, that I release one prisoner, and uh, so I'll just scourge Jesus and release him to you. And the Bible says, but the crowd in one voice cried out, crucify him, crucify him, free Barabbas, but crucify Jesus. And then a third time, three different times, Pilate says, and this time he takes a basin of water and he washes his hands and he said, I'm washing my hands of this whole affair. I find no fault in this man. And the Bible says that the voices of the people prevailed, meaning that Pontius Pilate surrendered to the social pressure of the people, the bloodthirsty crowd that day. And the Bible says that Pilate allows Jesus, the Prince of Glory, to be crucified. Can you ever imagine a more tragic scene of social pressure in all your life? He, he cowtailed to the crowd. He gave in to what the crowd wanted. When David felt the full pressure of these 600 men in this cave, and they were all saying to him, David, now's your time. Go get him. Go get him. Go kill him. Look at what David does in verse number four. David arose. Now notice, I can just kind of see him slip out of the shadows of that cave. And the Bible says he cut off the, the skirt of Saul's robe privately. Now, we don't know. We don't know if Saul had taken off his robe and laid it to the side while he was answering nature's call. We don't know if he still had his robe on. But either way, David comes out of the shadows and he pulls his dagger out of his sheath. And he comes up to King Saul. Perhaps all of the men who are watching this through the, 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 the darkness of that cave, they're watching this and they're thinking, man, he's going to do it, he's going to do it, he's going to do it. And David just reaches out and he cuts off a, a corner of King Saul's robe. Look in verse 5. When he does it, he's immediately convicted that he should not have done it. Verse 5. It came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he cut off Saul's skirt. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth my hand against him, seeing that he's the anointed of the Lord. So David stayed his servants with these words, and he allowed them not to arise against Saul. And Saul rose up out of the cave and went on, on his way. David could have given in to the pressure of those men around him and taken Saul's life, but he doesn't. He just comes up and cuts off a corner of his robe and he immediately knew that what he had done was to disrespect the person that God had set up as king, Saul. Now Saul was a, a, a tragic figure in, in Old Testament history and in biblical history. Saul had become paranoid. He started out well. But the longer he was king, the worse he got. He began to believe his own stuff. And he got worse and worse. He got farther away from God and farther away from God. And he was just a downward spiral headed toward destruction, headed toward shipwreck and disaster. But even at that rate, David knew that this is the guy that God has on the throne. And if God has him on the throne, it's not my role to touch him. And it's not my role to get him off the throne. It's God's role to take care of him. And as soon as he cut off a corner of Saul's robe, he was immediately convicted about that. And he tells his men, I'm not going to harm him. You're not going to harm him. And we're, we're not going to conform to this pressure of getting even, of exacting revenge. 
but we are instead going to look for the possibility of reconciliation, which is our second point. David resists this pressure to conform and get even with Saul because he is instead bent on the possibility of reconciliation. I love this story. Look what he says in verse number 8. Saul gets up and he goes out of the cave and David arose afterward and went out of the cave and he cried after Saul saying, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and he bowed himself. Now I can just imagine how shocked Saul must have been, can't you? He comes out of that cave. He hears this voice behind him. It's David's voice and Saul is like, David, you mean you've been hiding in that cave all this time? And the scripture describes it this way, that David comes out of the cave very humbly. The Bible says his face is stooped to the ground and that he is humbly seeking reconciliation with Saul. He could have killed him, yes. He could have taken his life at any moment, yes. But what does he choose to do? He chooses to humble himself and say, Saul, I don't want us to be enemies. I want us to reconcile. You see, when he's in that cave and he's dealing with all of these cave matters, God is working in his heart and God is saying to, to David, David, a real king is not one who's going to live eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. A real king is going to be one that is going to look, look for opportunities for reconciliation. Listen, if you're dealing with somebody today that's out to get you, maybe you feel like it's your boss at work all right? And he's putting more pressure on you than what you can possibly live up to. Or maybe it's a boss that doesn't have a lot of integrity and he's asking you to do things that, that are not appropriate for you to do. And, and you're in this struggle. Do your best to, to turn things around. Uh, do your best to never give up on the prospects and the possibility of God moving in and healing the situation. Our tendency is to fight back with the arm of the flesh. David's tendency in his fallen nature will be to take that dagger and, and make sure Saul paid for trying to kill him those three different times. But David doesn't do that. He doesn't conform. Instead, what he does is, he, is he's looking for opportunities to reconcile. So when he comes out of the cave and he calls out to King Saul, he's got this piece of garment in his hand that he cut off of Saul's robe, and he's, I can see him he's kind of waving in the air, and he said, Hey, Saul! Saul! Saul stops dead in his tracks, looks back up that canyon of the caves of En Gedi, and there stands David on that precipice, and he's holding that, that piece of robe, and he says, Saul. Notice verse number nine. The Bible says, and David said to Saul, wherefore hear thou of the men's words, saying, behold, David seeks your hurt? Behold, this day thine eyes have seen how the Lord has delivered thee today into my hand in the cave, and some, look at this, some bade me, some encouraged me to kill you. But my eyes spared you. And I said, I will not put forth my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yea, see the skirt of your robe in my hand? For in that I cut off the skirt of your robe. I didn't kill you. Know thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in my hand, and I have not sinned against you. But yet you hunt my soul to take it. In other words, David is like, while all of my men were encouraging me to kill you, Saul, I could have done it. And this is proof 
As he waves that piece of skirt, this is proof of how close I got to you. And I could have taken your life, but I'm not going to interfere with what God needs to do. God set you on the throne, and in God's timing, God's going to take you off the throne. Off the throne. And I'm just going to let God work, and I'm going to let God move in his timing, and I'm not going to take it into my own hands. And that is hard to do, isn't it? It's hard not to run ahead of God and get ahead of God and do things our own way. That's what Moses did. When the Lord told Moses that he would be the deliverer of the Hebrew people, Moses thought he would do it in the arm of the flesh. He kills the Egyptian. He hit him in the sand. And he thought it was going to be by his own strength. And God would say to Moses, oh no, Moses, it's not going to be by your power, not by your strength. It's going to be by my strength and my power. And God has to put Moses in the desert for 40 years to help Moses learn that it is, it is about, about following God, not about reacting in the arm of the flesh. So David didn't conform to the pressures of life. Instead, what he was looking for was an opportunity to be reconciled to King Saul. Do you know the greatest sermon in history was preached by Jesus Christ? On the, it's called the Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount of Olives. And in the Sermon on the Mount, among many of the things that he said, he said this, whatever you would that men should do to you, do even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We call that passage the golden rule. Whatever you would want somebody to do to you, that's what you should do to them. But our society has substituted my rights and my get-even attitude for the golden rule. And now what our culture is bent on is how it affects me and how I can get even and how I can make things right. And we forget about, no, God is in control. I'm going to let God work out all of this. Let me give you three things that David recognized about Saul that would help prompt him for reconciliation. First of all, David recognized Saul's authority over him, all right? At this time, Saul was still king. And David is like, he might be a terrible king, but he's still the one that God has put in place at this particular time, and I'm not gonna get ahead of God and try to undo what God is doing, so I'm gonna let it play out. I'm gonna recognize Saul's authority over me. Now listen, I mentioned this earlier, from the time David was first anointed as king until he actually takes the throne. You know how much time transpired? Roughly 15 years. 15 years. Now for those 15 years, what he was having to do is, is he was having to, to wait. You see, he was not only recognized that Saul is in a position of authority and, I'm, and to respect Saul is to res respect God. But he also was in a place where he knew that he had to wait on God for God to do the work. So for 15 years, during that time, he had to fight Goliath. During that time, uh, he had many other battles that he fought. During that time, he eventually worked his way into the court of King Saul where he played the harp for Saul and then was banished out of the kingdom. For 15 years, he had to wait on God. I said in the um, first service this morning that, that waiting is just not my spiritual gift. <laughs> I struggle with waiting. The other day I had to go to the, uh, to the license bureau, all right? And, uh, you know, you go there with fear and trembling because, you know, you're going to be there a long time. And I told my wife, I said, I'm going to get there and try to get there before they open. And I think I was there right at the time they, they opened the door roughly. And I just had to take a picture and send it to Tina and say, look at this. 
and the line was already out the door all the way down the sidewalk, and it was first thing in the morning, and I'm like, um, I just can't wait here. And waiting is hard to do, isn't it? It is difficult to do. But for 15 years, David is waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting on God to take care of the situation, and he's having to have patience. I read a story sometime back about when elevators were first invented that uh, people were having struggles riding the elevator. First of all, they didn't like the feeling of claustrophobia, uh, of being inside this little, this little cylinder that would shoot them up to another floor. Plus, they could not get over the fact that they would be hanging in midair with these cables, and, uh, and they were um, uh, didn't have the patience to wait on the elevator to go up and down. And engineers came up with a wonderful solution in order to address that. They came up with a solution to give people something to occupy their time while they were in the elevator. You know what they did? They put mirrored doors on the inside of the elevator. Now people could look at themselves, they could fix their hair, and they could adjust their clothing, and before you know it, their feelings of claustrophobia were over, and the fear of falling uh, from a break of a cable was over, and they, they accepted uh, this uh, idea of riding the elevator. So God says to us, in those moments when you're sick of waiting for God to come through, try to focus on His shining face. And try to trust Him and try to depend on Him and say, Lord, I don't know what else to do, but I'm just going to wait on you because I can't work this thing out myself. But that's what David does. He recognized Saul's authority. Secondly, he waited for God to have His perfect will and His work. But thirdly, and perhaps this is the most important, David refused to sink to Saul's level. Do you know three different times Saul tried to kill David? Saul threw those spears, but not one time did David pick them up and throw them back. He always sought reconciliation, never retribution. Could anybody have had any more reason to justify going after the guy who's trying to kill him than King David? He had been forced out of the palace. He had been forced out of the kingdom. He's now forced to hide in these honeycomb cliffs called the caves of Engedi, knowing that Saul is on his way. And when he had an opportunity to kill him, he should have done it. That's what his men said. But no, he's not going to conform. He's going to look for an opportunity for reconciliation because had he taken things into his own hands and killed Saul, he would have been no better than Saul. Someone once said, don't ever wrestle with a pig because you will get dirty and the pig loves it. And isn't that so true? Don't ever sink down to the level of somebody who has it out for you or somebody who wants to see you fail. Don't ever sink down to where you, you, you throw spears back and forth like Saul did. You know, always look for an opportunity for reconciliation. We live in a world that's terribly divided, do we not? We live in a country that's divided. We're divided among political parties. We're divided among racial lines, ethnic lines. We're divided uh, religious circles many times. We're divided the haves and the have-nots. And we live in a divided world and a divided country that seems to be coming apart at its seams. But listen, don't ever give up on people. Always look for an opportunity to reconcile 
and to heal and to be that healer if at all possible. You know, the Bible says that, that when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God could have certainly annihilated Adam and Eve at that moment, could he not? But you know what he chose to do? He chose to redeem them. And in his love and in his grace, he chose to reconcile them and to bring them back into his family. God's steadfast love, it never fails. His mercy, it never runs out. And he looks for opportunities to bring people into his family and reconcile them. Listen, the Bible says in the book of Corinthians, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. All things are of God who has reconciled us, listen to this, to himself by Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And one of my favorite verses says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That is Emmanuel. God with us wrapped up in the skin of Jesus Christ that his sole purpose was to reconcile man back to God. And when we talk about that theological concept of reconciliation, we're never saying that God is reconciled to man. Oh no. God has never changed. God didn't leave. It is man who walked away in his sin and disobedience. God sent Jesus and he left the splendor of heaven, came into this world to seek to save those who were lost and to bring them back in to a right relationship with God the Father. And that's what he did on the cross. It has been said he, with one hand he reached out and he took God and the other hand he reached down and he took sinful mankind and he bridged the gap and he reconciled us to God. That's the ministry that Jesus had. And he says to us now, you look for opportunities not to get revenge, not to get even, but look for opportunities for reconciliation and promote that with other people and live that out in your life. I gave you that passage from the book of Corinthians about uh, reconciliation. There are three primary uh, Greek words used for reconcile or reconciliation in the New Testament. And the one that is used in that particular verse I gave you is the word kataleso, and it means, it basically means to change completely, that you take people who are enemies and that they're so changed that now the gap is, is shortened and those enemies become friends. That's why the Lord would say to us, I've not called you servants, but I've called you friends. And Jesus reconciled us to God. David in the cave could have succumbed to the pressure to kill Saul, but he didn't. Instead, he chose to try to reconcile with Saul. So he steps out of that cave and he's waving that skirt. Look in verse number 12. If you're listening, say amen. He says, the Lord judge between me and you. The Lord avenge me of you, but my hand shall not be upon you. This is what he's telling Saul. As says the proverb of the ancients, wickedness proceeds from the wicked. And isn't that true? Wickedness proceeds from the wicked. The Lord said that sweet water doesn't come from a bitter fountain. He said, you will know a tree by the fruit that it bears. And David says to Saul, wickedness comes from wicked." But my hand is not going to be on you, Saul. After whom is the king of Israel come out? 
After whom do you pursue? A dead dog or a flea? In other words, David is saying, so I'm nothing in your sight. I'm not going to bother you. I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. Verse 15, and the Lord therefore be judge and judge between me and you and see and plead my cause and deliver me out of your hand. Do you know what he is saying? So I'd love to be, re to be reconciled and I'd love for it to be back the way it was when I used to play in your king's court, my harp, so you could have peace in your soul. And I'd love to have reconciliation. But God is bigger than all of this, and God's going to take care of it. And Saul, whether you choose to reconcile or not, that's up to you. I also said in the first service this morning that you can never control what somebody else may do, what they may say, how they may behave. We don't have any control over that. But the one thing we have control over is how we react to that. Isn't that right? We have control over how we respond to that. And David is like, Saul, what you do is up to you. But I want to see us reconcile. In fact, Saul never does reconcile. If you look at the chapters following this, David spares his life again. He could have killed him again. David spared his life again. And again, uh, Saul is trying to kill him in the final chapters of 1 Samuel. But David never retaliated. Never threw the spears back. I mean, you look at the contrast. Saul hated David. David loved Saul. Saul tried to sabotage David. David said, I'm not going to lift my hand against God's anointed. David simply, in a spirit of maturity, is like, God is bigger than all this, and I'm going to let God take care of the things that I can't take care of. So he wasn't pressured, or he didn't conform to the pressure of his men. But secondly, he always looked for the possibility of reconciliation. And then finally, he engaged in the pursuit of righteousness. What motivated David? David wanted to be righteous in how he responded to Saul. He wanted to be above the fray, not to sink down to Saul's level, not to wrestle with the pig, but he wanted to be above all of that and call it to a higher standard. You and I are called to be like our master, the Lord Jesus. Do you know when Jesus was ridiculed, he didn't ridicule back. When he was reviled, he did not return that when he was cursed. He did not curse back when he was abused. He did not abuse back. He never went to the place where you pay evil for evil. And if anybody would have been justified in getting even, it would have been the Prince of Glory who had never sinned against anybody. But the Bible says they hang him on the cross, put nails in his hands, put a crown of thorn on his brow, and they, they, they walk by him and they criticize him and they say, if you are really who you say you are, come down off of that cross and then you will, we will believe. And imagine the temptation that had to be there to come down off of that cross and just thrash every one of them. That's King James English. Just thrash them all, right? And clean them all up. But here's what he prayed. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Jesus now has challenged us to live at a higher level, to try to pursue righteousness and not to sink down and to get even and to give revenge and to live in unforgiveness because he knows the toll that it takes in a person's life to live with a grudge. Makes you more bitter. Makes you more cynical. Makes you more suspicious. So he says, let it go. Let it go and pursue holiness. Very quickly, look as we close in verse 16. I just want to read you how this story closes. It came to pass when David had made an end of speaking these words to Saul. 
In fact, a large portion of this chapter is made up of two speeches. The first one is what David says to Saul that we already read, and now this is Saul's response. Look at Saul, what he says. Saul said, Is this thy voice, my son David? Saul lifted up his voice. Look at his reaction. Verse 16. Saul lifted up his voice, and he wept. Why do you suppose that is? I believe it is because at that time he saw in David a heart that he knew he didn't possess. He saw in David a man after God's own heart whom God was going to set up as the next king, and he knew that his tenure as king was coming to a disastrous close. And I think it was a weeping of regret that I wish I would have behaved differently. I wish that I would, would have lived differently. So when he hears David's voice, he, he weeps and notice, and he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me good and I have rewarded you evil. And you have showed this day how much that thou hast dealt well with me, for as much as when the Lord has delivered me into your hand that you killed me not. He acknowledges, David, I recognize now that you could have killed me. And if I'd have had that opportunity, I would have sure not let you off the hook. Notice, for if a man find his enemy, will he let him go well away? Wherefore the Lord reward thee good for that that thou hast done to me this day. And now behold, I know well that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. And he just basically asks a favor of him. It's not the end of the story of Saul and David. Again, Saul tries to kill him later on. David spares his life later on. Saul consults a witch of Endor to try to find some answers for his life. But in this 24th chapter, it concludes this way. Swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my seed from me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore to him and Saul went home, but David and his men got them up unto the hold. In other words, Saul is saying, I know God's done with me. I know that he's given the throne to another, to you. But my request is when you take the throne, don't exterminate my family and our name. And David made that promise. In fact, you know who David's best friend was? His best friend was Jonathan, that's right, Saul's son, who would be the heir to the throne, you would think. But Jonathan became David's best friend, and David and Jonathan also have had, a, had a covenant together that when David came to power, he promised, I'm not going to be like all the other kings of the kingdoms around us and exterminate the family. I'm going to show mercy because he is picturing the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords who could have indeed brought mercy to a sin-cursed world, but instead poured out his wrath on his only son, Jesus Christ, so that you and I, who were destined to be eternally separated from God, could be reconciled to God. So as we close, maybe you are here today and you are on the run, on the run from God. And God has been dealing in your heart about a particular issue and you've been running. Or maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian and you've been running from the Lord, listen, for heaven's sake, stop running from him and run toward him. Amen, church? Run toward him. And you will find in him a God who lo whose, whose love and mercy and compassion will never fail, and he will welcome you into his family with open arms. Praise God 
for who he is and that he so loved the world that he sent Jesus to be our Savior and our Redeemer. Shall we pray together? Thank you, Lord, for your word and how it is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. As we have a time of invitation where we invite folk to make public decisions, there may be folk here today praying about church membership that believe this is the place that you want them to unite so that they can have accountability and they can be involved in in the work of a local congregation. I pray, Lord, that they would come. There may be others, and this is most important, Lord, that may be here and have never been saved. And they know in their heart if they were to step out into eternity today, that they would be forever lost. God, that doesn't have to be the case. You made a way. You've redeemed us. You've reconciled us. You've called us one of your own. And I pray that in this moment, as the invitation is given, those, whether listening online or later through the archived sermon or in this auditorium today, that they would in their heart ask you, to come into their life as they repent from their sin and claim you as Lord and Savior. So take this invitation and use it in a way that will honor you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.